Uh, If you would turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, So we have been going through the book of Exodus, and uh, we have come to uh, the Ten Commandments. And what we're doing is taking one week on each of the Ten Commandments. This is maybe one of the more well-known parts of the book of Exodus, uh, but it's also something that's worth uh, really digging into uh, because uh, the Ten Commandments sort of express the heart of God's desire for us as his children in terms of how he wants us to live. Um, So last week we... uh, looked at the first one in verse 3, and today we're looking at verses 4 through 6, but I'll read uh, beginning at verse 1 through verse 6 to give us a little bit of the context. Uh, One book that's been quite helpful to me as I've been studying uh, the Ten Commandments is a book by Jen Wilkin. Uh, She's a Bible teacher, uh, and uh, her book is called Ten Words to Live By. So I got a few copies, and they're out in the entryway if you want to take one with you, and there's one chapter on each of the Ten Commandments. And you can sort of read it as we go through. That'll sort of help you, I think, even dig a little deeper into it. Uh, So feel free to take one if you will use it and read it um, and enjoy it. Uh, So let's, uh, but let's read chapter 20, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, So back in 2006, uh, this was before I was a pastor, I was a member of a Baptist church down in New Haven, and for many years we had rented space from another church, we didn't own our own building, Uh, but over time the church was growing and uh, the place we were renting asked us to try to move along and find another place, and so we looked and found uh, a former Catholic church that had been vacant for over a year. Uh, The Catholic diocese uh, was Uh, ready to sell the building. They offered us a very reasonable price, and so we bought it. Uh, But when we moved in, one of the questions that we had to figure out was, how would we, as a Protestant church, uh, sort of have our worship services in a very traditional-feeling Catholic building? Uh, So there were Stations of the Cross on the walls. There were stained-glass windows with images of Jesus and Mary and the saints. And in the front of the church, there was a huge altar as well as paintings representing Mary, Jesus, God the Father, and the angels. So we had to decide, should we, what should we keep because we want to honor the historic character of the building, uh, or are there things that we should maybe uh, find a way to uh, revise uh, because we probably wouldn't use? Uh, so we had a lot of questions uh, as we were sort of figuring out how, how to make this building work for us and how to honor the uh, historic character of the building, but one of the questions we discussed along the way was, is the second commandment relevant here? Uh, What exactly is this commandment prohibiting? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So what exactly is this commandment telling us not to do? Right? Is it saying that we shouldn't make any artwork at all? 
Well, the answer to that has to be no, because 11 chapters later in Exodus chapter 31, God appoints and specifically chooses two artists and says, I'm appointing you to design the furniture uh, for, and the decorations for the tabernacle. And in chapter 31, verse 4 through 5, uh, their mission was to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. So the point of the second commandment is not that God doesn't like artwork or that we shouldn't make art representing anything at all. But if it isn't prohibiting all artwork, what exactly is it prohibiting? And you might ask, is this commandment only relevant to church building committees and architects? What about the rest of us? You know, does this have relevance to our daily lives? Uh, well, that's the question that I want to dig into this morning. And uh, as, I, as with each of the commandments, I want to uh, follow a similar structure uh, for the message. Uh, so two weeks ago, I talked about how the commandments are a manual, sort of like a manual for a car or an appliance because they show us God's design and how God made us to work. They're a mirror because they, ref they show us our sin and our, how we fall short of them. They're also a window that help us see Jesus, our Savior, more clearly. And finally, they're a guide that show us God's path. So first, I want to talk about how is this a manual that shows us God's design, then go through each of those four points. Uh, so uh, last week, we talked about, in the first commandment, how pretty much everybody else in the ancient world worshipped multiple gods and goddesses. And the Israelites were very unusual in that they worshipped only one god. But the Israelites were unusual not only because of who they worshipped, but also how they worshipped. So nearly every other god in the ancient world had an image representing it or identified with it. So if you walked into the Temple of Zeus in ancient Greece, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, you would see a huge statue of Zeus over 40 feet tall. It took 13 years for an artist to, to, to build it. If you walked into the Temple of Venus, the largest temple in ancient Rome, you would see a giant statue of Venus the goddess Venus. If you walked into the temple of Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, you would see his statue. The idea was the statue guarantees or demonstrates that the god is here with us. And so you would bow down before the statue or offer sacrifices before the statue to show reverence to the god or goddess whom it represented. But if you walked into the temple in Jerusalem, you would not find any statue or any image representing God himself. Now, the temple had lots of decorations, so in the innermost room, the Holy of Holies, there was a throne, which was called the mercy seat, and there were figures of cherubim, which are basically sort of fiery, fiery heavenly warriors like angels, on either side of it, and underneath it was called the Ark of the Covenant, where actually a copy, or two copies, of the Ten Commandments were kept. In Exodus chapter 25, God said to Moses, I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. But if you were to walk in and look at that throne, it did not have a figure on it. You would see an empty seat because there was no figure, no statue, no image, no painting representing God himself. And this was very unusual. Right? You walk into any other temple in the ancient world and say, who's this temple devoted to? And they say, 
that God. See that statue? That's whose it is. But if you walk into the, the, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, God, the God of the Bible was not represented by a physical object. Now, here are two reasons why this commandment reflects God's good design. Uh, so reason number one is the true God rules over creation and is not contained or controlled by it. So when God revealed himself to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, he didn't give them a picture of himself and say, here, keep this picture with you for the rest of your lives. He didn't give them a necklace and say, here, I'm giving each of you a necklace, wear this around your neck, and it'll protect you from evil spirits. No, he spoke to them and he gave them his word and he said, hold on to my words and let my words guide you through your life on earth. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 Moses said this, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. So the principle was this, what their eyes had not seen, their hands must not fashion. Right? God had not revealed himself to them in a physical form that they could see. He hadn't given them a painting or an image of himself so they shouldn't make one up for themselves when God hadn't revealed himself to them in that way. You see, the point is the Israelites weren't allowed to make up their own idea of God and think of God however I imagine him, her, or it to be. And uh, their understanding of, of God had to be based on how God revealed himself. Think of it on a human level. Each of us wants to be known and loved for who we really are, right? Nobody likes to feel ignored or misunderstood or unknown, right? And this is even more true with God himself. God wants us to know him and love him for who he really is. And he doesn't want us to make up our own idea of himself that might not actually be consistent with who he is. God doesn't want him to reduce him to something less than that. And that's basically what verse 5 means. Now, verse 5 says God is a jealous God. And that's a part of this command that sort of might raise some questions when we hear that word, because we usually think of jealousy as a bad thing. Uh, but in some contexts, jealousy can be a good thing. Think of it in this way. A healthy marriage, by definition, excludes rivals and interferers. So imagine a husband who comes to his wife and says, Honey, I love you, but not exclusively. And from now on, I'm going to spend every other night with somebody else, with another woman. I hope you won't be jealous. His wife would be entirely justified in flipping out. Right? If she said, do whatever you want, I don't care. You can have me and her and whoever else you want to. That would show a lack of love or a lack of commitment or a lack of understanding of God's design for marriage. Right? God designed marriage to be a relationship of exclusive loyalty. And in the same way, God wants his people to be exclusively loyal to him and not substitute something else, not let anything else be brought into or come between us and God. 
Now, while we're looking at the first half of verse 5, you might have questions about the second half where it says God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You might say, what does that mean? Is that saying that God punishes innocent children for their parents' uh, flaws? No. Okay, we have to read the whole verse. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers or parents on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's not saying God punishes an innocent future generation for their parents' sins. It's saying that God uh, punishes later generations for committing the same sins they learn from their parents and grandparents. In other words, see, sometimes God is patient and merciful when we sin and we don't experience the consequences immediately. But God is saying, if you continue, you will not escape the consequences uh, forever. So we can't say, my parents set a bad example and I can do no better. God is saying, no, you can't, that's not an out. Uh, But what we can say is, my parents may have set a bad example, but with God's help, I can walk in a different way. And in that case, you have the promise in verse 6. Because verse 6, the sentence continues, but show, and and verse 6 really shows us God's deepest desire for us. God's heart, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, it actually uh, is a very similar verse, and it says, God shows steadfast love to a thousand generations. So the contrast is one of the greatest numerical contrasts in the whole Bible. Okay, three or four generations that continue in the same evil way, uh, will be punished by God, is the beginning of the verse. But God shows steadfast love to a thousand generations, right? God's greatest desire is to show his, his grace and mercy and, and care for a very long time, for even for eternity, uh, to lavish on us his abundant grace uh, when we come to know and love him and honor him for who he truly is. Okay, so... God wants us to know and love and honor him for who he really is, and therefore we shouldn't make an image of a created thing and then import it into our relationship with God. Okay, and this isn't just an Old Testament teaching. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Acts chapter 17. God rules over creation. He's not contained or controlled by it. Uh, So that's the first reason. God rules over creation. He's not contained or controlled by it. The second reason why this is a good command that reflects God's good design is that God's true image bearers are living humans, not lifeless objects. So verse 4 says, don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. Now, if you've read the Bible earlier, before leading up to this point, you might, there might be a bell that goes off in your mind when you hear those words, image and likeness. Because those two words appear in the first chapter of the Bible in Genesis 1 when it talks about how God created human beings in his image and according to his likeness. So the point is God made us living, breathing, speaking, listening, feeling human beings to be his image bearers, his representatives in the world. He didn't send a statue down into the world to be his image. He's put us in the world to be his image bearers, to show the whole of creation what God is truly like. And no physical object can ever fulfill that calling. 
Uh, Psalm 115, we read earlier, sort of emphasizes that point. Idols have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell. And, the last, and then it says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So there's a principle and a warning. The principle is that we become like what we worship. We become like what we value most in life and what we build our lives around. And the warning is that if living humans worship lifeless objects, we become more and more like those lifeless objects. You see, when God made the world, he appointed people to be in charge of things, not things to be in charge of people. And so when living humans begin to build their lives around lifeless things, it means something has gone terribly wrong with the world. It means that God's good order has been turned upside down and the result is chaos and death and destruction. And that leads us to our second point. The second commandment's not just a manual that shows us God's good design, it's also a mirror that shows us our sin. Now when we first read this commandment, we might think, well, this is talking about what people did in the ancient world when they bowed, went, down in, into, went into temples and bowed down to statues. I don't do that. I'm, I mean, I think I'm pretty good here, right? But there are many ways that living humans in the modern world can worship and serve lifeless things. All right, how about greed? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in two places, in Ephesians and in Colossians, he says, greed is idolatry. He doesn't just describe greed as an offense against other people, but as an offense against God. Uh, and greed can take many forms. It's not only wanting more and more things, but it's also just making our, when our main purpose becomes to preserve our stuff instead of fulfill the mission God has given us. We are so worried about preserving all of our things that we lose sight of loving other people and worshiping God. Uh, have you ever been to a hoarder's house? Right? It's full of things that they will never use and don't even appreciate, but they will never get rid of or give away to someone else. And the result is a hoarder's house feels cluttered and confining because the space that was meant for people has been taken over by things. Right? That's another example of how we can sort of worship and serve things instead of the true God. Uh, another example, living humans in the modern world worshiping lifeless things. How about superstitions? Some people have a necklace or a bracelet or a statue or a picture or some other object and they think this will protect me from evil. This will give me good luck. This will connect me to God. God says, no. But here's the one that I think is most prevalent today. Think about the last time you were waiting in line somewhere. At the supermarket, at a restaurant, at a doctor's office, at a bus stop, waiting to pick your kids up somewhere. What are most people these days doing? They are looking at a metal object with a screen and often in the process completely ignoring the living humans next to them. And this doesn't just happen in public spaces with relative strangers. Almost 70% of parents in a survey admitted 
that they feel distracted by their phone when they spend time with their kids. And parents, I'm not standing up here as somebody who has this all figured out and lives this out perfectly. You could find a time in the last week where I would have to say, guilty as charged. Now the point of this sermon is not that we should all ditch our phones and tablets and computers and TVs. They can all be useful tools in a hundred different ways. But they're not neutral tools. So a screwdriver sitting in a school box is in a tool toolbox is a neutral tool. It's just sitting there. You can use it for good, right? To screw something in and out of the wall. You can use it for evil to punch holes in the wall. But it's just there. It's not beckoning you. It has no power within it. It has no motives behind it. It's just there. It's a neutral tool. A smartphone is different because a smartphone has apps. And those apps are designed and controlled by people and by companies who do have a motive. So if you go on Facebook or YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever news app you follow, you are dealing with a company and the company wants to make money and they make money mostly by selling ads and the more time you spend on their app, the more ads they can feed you. And so they design an algorithm to suggest content that will get you to keep on scrolling and keep on clicking. In other words, the more addicted you are to their app, the more money they will make. And in many cases, the more extreme and provocative the content, the more clicks it generates. It's true with political news. It's also true in other areas. One data scientist studied teenagers' TikTok accounts. His conclusion was, when depressive content is good for engagement, it is actively promoted by the algorithm. In other words, a teenager who goes on TikTok and watches a couple of videos about depression may soon find him or herself with an endless stream of suggested videos about depression, hopelessness, self-harm, and suicide. Phones can be useful tools. I'm not saying they can't be, and I'm not saying we should get rid of them because it's hard to live without them in the modern world. They can help us to love God. They can help us to communicate with people. They can help us to figure out our directions. We don't get lost, but they're not neutral. And without us realizing it, they can easily become our idols that suck the life out of us and lead us down into bad paths. How do you know if your phone has become an idol? Here's a helpful checklist from an article that I read. Your phone is most likely an idol if you have to check it first thing in the morning before doing anything else. You sleep with your phone on at night and check it whenever it buzzes. You panic if you find yourself in a social situation without it. You'd rather be on your phone while eating a meal instead of having a live conversation with the people around you. You turn to your phone for comfort when you feel awkward or annoyed. You get on your phone almost any time that you're not doing something else. 
do, do we see ourselves in the mirror here? The second commandment's a manual that shows us God's good design. It's also a mirror that shows us our sin. But the good news is that it's also a window that shows us Jesus. The second commandment warns us against worshiping lifeless things, worshiping lifeless images, but it points us to the true image of God, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, God made us in his image as his image bearers, but we haven't lived up to that calling. We've tarnished and defaced the image of God, like spraying graffiti all over a beautiful building. We've done that by worshiping lifeless images instead of worshiping the living God. And the result of our sin is death, but Jesus came to lead us out of death and into life so that through him we might know the true and living God. And Jesus revealed himself and revealed God's nature to us in an even more profound way than the Israelites experienced it at Mount Sinai. When God revealed himself to the Israelites at Mount Sinai, they heard his voice, but they didn't see his face. Because his, he, he's, he, it was too much for them. But when Jesus came into the world, he didn't just come as a disembodied voice hiding behind a cloud. He came as a person, and his disciples saw him face to face. They touched him and ate with him. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you, will, you can now see exactly who God is. Isn't that amazing? That when we read the stories about Jesus in the Bible and, and when we think about how the apostles experienced him, that's God himself, right? When you look at Jesus, you're looking at God himself. Jesus is better than any, than any image, likeness, work of art that we could ever manufacture. And so the second commandment invites us to worship Jesus, the true image of God. And that leads us to our last point. The second commandment is a guide that shows us God's path. Uh, let me end with two practical points. Number one, we should worship God according to his revelation, not according to our imagination. Uh, Jesus and his apostles left us with basically four things. Number one, the scriptures, right? The New Testament, what we read in the Bible. Number two, the sacraments, baptism and communion, which, rep which are symbolic acts that represent what it means to uh, believe in Christ and belong to Christ and live in Christ. Third, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised. And fourth, the people of God. Those are the things that are going to help you grow in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The scriptures, the sacraments, the Holy Spirit, and the people of God. Not pictures, not statues, not buildings, not jewelry, not other things. So we should not think that a picture or a statue represents God himself or has the power to bring us close to God. Now, you might say, well, okay, so we shouldn't make a picture or statue of God himself, but what about Jesus? Uh, well, since Jesus was and is fully human, I think it is appropriate, right? When in a children's Bible, there are pictures of Jesus, just as there are pictures of other scenes from the Bible, right? Because Jesus and his apostles were real flesh and blood people. 
right? They weren't just behind a cloud in heaven. And so I do think uh, that's legitimate uh, for Christians uh, to, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think this commandment rules out imagery of Jesus Christ uh, or symbolic uh, or, or just symbols. Um, uh, so at the same time, there can be a danger with pictures of Jesus because pictures of Jesus can sometimes reflect more on the artist than they do on uh, the real Jesus. And sometimes people can take a picture of Jesus and treat it like a magic charm. Uh, so I would say God didn't give us a painting of Jesus. He gave us the Bible. So let's make the most of what he's given us. And let's start with that. Uh, now, some people ask a question. They say, well, if we can't relate to God through a picture or an image, does that mean that we can only relate to God in a completely abstract and philosophical and impersonal way? Does that mean we can only think about God in terms of what God is not and how God is not like us? The answer is no, because the Bible is full of symbols and metaphors that help us get to know God and relate to him in a personal way. So Psalm 18, here's a few examples. Psalm 18 says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my shield and my stronghold. Or Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Or Exodus 19, I God says, I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So if you read the Bible, the Bible's not an abstract philosophical treatise. The Bible has all these symbols and metaphors and pictures that, that sort of help us look at God's creation that he has made and see his glory and power reflected within it. So John Calvin said, creation, uh, the, God, the world that God has made, is a theater of God's glory. Right? It's like every day we're sitting in a theater looking at God's glory. When you see the trees and the leaves around us, when you see the sun uh, uh, rising and setting the clouds, the rain, all these things reflect God's wisdom and power and glory in one way or another. And so there's all kinds of ways that we can, can worship God and <clears throat> according to how he's revealed himself uh, in his creation and through his word. Uh, but that's the first point. Worship God according to his revelation, not according to our own imagination. Second point, rather than remaking God into our image, we need to let him remake us into his image bearers. And this is what happens when we turn to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, when we worship him as the true image of God. Colossians 3.10 says, We have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, if we worship lifeless objects, we become more and more like those lifeless objects. But when we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we become more alive and free and whole through him. You know, think about it, think about it this way, in a concrete, practical way. If we turn to our phones whenever we're tired, whenever we're angry, whenever we're bored, what happens to us over time? We become less and less creative. We become less and less able to have an actual conversation with the people who are physically around us. We become less and less attentive to our own bodies and to the physical world around us. We become less and less patient and resilient. And we become more and more isolated in our online silos. But what happens when 
We worship the Lord Jesus, and our phone is not our master, but it's simply a tool that we use. We can use it when it's helpful, and we can put it down without panicking. We can put it on silent and perhaps get a better night's sleep until it wakes us, you know, might wake you up in the morning if you set your alarm on it, but you'll at least get a better night's sleep if you're not constantly interrupted by buzzing. We can appreciate the beauty and the wildness of God's creation when we look around. Right? We can develop creativity. You know, how does creativity get developed? Partly it's through being bored and finding something to do. We can build relationships with our actual neighbors, the people who are physically near us, even though they might be different than us in a lot of ways. We become more alive and free and whole. And the reason for that is that ultimately, God is the master artist, and we are his workmanship. Think about it that way. God says, don't make an image that you think is, is a fit representation of me because I'm the artist, and I'm making you into my image bearers. And if you let me shape you through the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, you will become my image bearers and representatives in the world. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship. And he has prepared good works in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us this command and even some of the perhaps surprising ways that it's relevant to our, our world today. We pray that you would help us convict us, Lord, where we have, uh, where we have built our lives around things or objects rather than around you. We pray that you would fix our eyes on you, the Lord Jesus, and that you would help us uh, to be your image bearers in this world and to be renewed after the image of God through Jesus Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.